You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. So part of what we learned yesterday is that there are several different kinds of gnosis, or g-knowledge, as I'm barbarously translating that, some of which are more intense or more g-knowing, as Aristotle would put it, than others. Now, among the most intense of these are episteme, e-knowledge or science, and techne, art. Each episteme or techne is about some kind of things. Geometry is about shapes, medicine is about health, biology is about animals, etc. And unlike the knowledge of someone who's merely experienced with that kind of thing, someone experienced with shapes or animals, uh, the person with episteme or techne has universal knowledge and sees things as following from their causes. He knows not only that uh, triangles side stand in a certain ratio if they're right triangles, but he knows why they must stand in that ratio. And he knows it not only about this or that triangle or subtype of triangle, but about triangles in general. Now, Aristotle goes on to give a characterization of episteme in particular as the kind of knowledge you have of an object when you, one, geno its cause, two, know that the cause causes that object. You don't just know the thing which is in fact the cause, but you know it as causing the thing that you have episteme of. And three, recognize therefore that the object couldn't be otherwise than as it is. If you just happen to notice that triangles or right triangle sides always fell in a certain ratio, you would know that it is. But because you wouldn't yet know the cause, you wouldn't know that it couldn't be otherwise. You'd know that all triangles seem to be like this, but if you measured one and it turned out not to be that way, you'd have no way to rule that out. It stands as a kind of coincidence to you. Maybe something that you're sure, because you've seen so many cases of it, you'd be shocked if there was something different. But nonetheless, uh, you don't know why it couldn't be other than as it is. Whereas, so the idea goes, when you have episteme, because you know the cause and you see the effect that you have episteme of, as following from that cause, you recognize that the effect couldn't be other than as it is. Okay, next point from yesterday. At least some episteme, and it's going to turn out all, is reached through demonstrations. And demonstrations are deductions in which one shows effects to be necessary by deducing them from their causes. You see the effect is following deductively from the cause. That's not a complete definition of a demonstration yet, but it's getting close. We'll add the remaining elements in in a moment. And finally, the premises of demonstrations must be prior by nature to the conclusions. Uh, prior by nature, though not necessarily prior to us. And recall, what's prior to us is what's nearer to perception, easier to know directly from perception, What's prior by nature is what's more fundamental, what's a deeper cause. So, for example, uh, Kepler's laws would be prior to us than Newton's laws. But Newton would be prior by nature to Kepler because you would have to learn Kepler first, going from perception to eventually discover Newton's laws. However, in the order of what identifies the more fundamental causes, Newton's laws identify the causes that explain Kepler's, just as an example from the history of science. Okay.
Well, that brings us up to where we are at present. We know, we'll say later, Aristotle says, there's another whether there's another type of e-knowing. But we're saying now that we owe no, and here I think it means the same as e-know, it sometimes does, through demonstrations. Well, then, if e-knowing is as we've assumed, demonstrative e-knowledge must be from premises that have the following characteristics. And he gives uh, uh, six of them. Uh, for if they have these characteristics, the principles will be appropriate to what's being proved. They'll be sufficient to establish the conclusions as episteme. Without that, we might have a deduction, but not a demonstration, because it won't produce episteme. Well, what are the characteristics that we need of the premises of a deduction if that deduction is going to be a demonstration? Well, first, the premises have to be true. If you have false premises, you can deduce a falsehood from it. That doesn't show you what caused the falsehood. The falsehood didn't actually happen, right? Um, so that's easy enough. The premises must be true. Not only must they be true, they must be better known than the conclusions than the conclusion. Now, this one's a little bit tricky because you might think that the um, principles of a science, something like, say, Newton's laws, are not better known than the, um, uh, what is demonstrated by the science, namely that the planets will go around in a certain way uh, in addition to other things. But when we talk about what's better known than something else, we don't just mean how sure you are of it although that might be part of it. But we also mean how intensive or powerful the knowledge is. And what you're going to get as a result of a demonstration is uh, knowledge um, of the effect, which not only uh, is knowledge that the effect is the case, but gives you a kind of specialized, intensive knowledge of the effect, whereby you see it as having to be that way, as not a mere coincidence, and grasping why it has to be that way. And in order for the, the, the deduction to give you that kind of a grasp of the effect, you have to already grasp the cause or the premises of the deduction right, in this stronger way. If, as far as you knew, Newton's laws were a big coincidence, and then it seemed from Newton's laws, uh, which you took like, well, that just happens to be the case, but it could change any day now, and it could be otherwise. And then you deduced from Newton's laws, which seemed to you a mere coincidence, that something had to follow from them. You wouldn't know that the thing that followed from them had to be the way that it was, because it could be a coincidence if the premises were. So if what we're going to get from this is a grasp of the conclusion as having to be so, not just being accidentally or by chance so, then we're going to need to already have that more intensive knowledge of the premises, which is what I think is meant by saying the premises must be better known. Better known by nature, rather than in particular to you, but also if you're going to have episteme, you're going to need to get into a position with respect to the premises whereby you just grasp them as needing to be the way they are. And it's going to be a real question, which we're going to look at today and tomorrow, how one could come to have that state. Okay, but the premises must be true and better known than the conclusions. They must be prior to and causes of the conclusions, 
which are two ways really of saying the same thing, and we've been covering that up to now when I've been talking about a demonstration as a deduction that deduces from causes. And finally, they must be not only prior to the conclusion, but they must be absolutely primary or immediate. Recall immediate means not having a middle term, so there's no earlier thing from which you could demonstrate it. Uh, in order to be the, the premises of a given deduction, Aristotle later makes clear, don't need to be immediate and primary, but they need to be closer to something that's immediate and primary than the conclusion of the deduction, and they need to be such that you know them from something that's immediate and primary. So as Aristotle puts it elsewhere, a deduction is a demonstration whenever the deduction proceeds through true and primary premises, or our knowledge of the premises is originally derived from true and primary premises. So it's either from very first things, the absolute fundamentals in the relevant field, or else it's from something that you do have demonstrated from things that are fundamentals in the field. When you have that, you have episteme. Now, what are these principles, these true and primary things from which an episteme departs? the things that are the beginnings, the fundamentals, the archai, or principles, of the science. Well, Aristotle identifies three types. Three types of principle. Two broad types, and then one of them subdivides into two narrower types. And the two broad types are axioms and theses. An axiom is something that's needed if one is to learn anything at all. If you didn't have an axiom, if you didn't already know an axiom, you would be incapable of learning anything. So you must acquire the axioms with your very first knowledge at the same time as you're learning your very first thing you learn. Because except when you have the axiom, you can't learn anything else. So what would be an example of an axiom? Does anyone have any ideas? Existence exists, someone says. That's not one that Aristotle himself names, but it, I think it is something that has this character. Uh, the two that Aristotle focuses on are the principle of non-contradiction, which is like this, and the law of excluded middle. The principle of non-contradiction says that something can't both be and fail to be a certain way. A subject can't both have and not have the same pre predicate at the same time and in the same respect, and he had some qualifications. And the law of excluded middle says that uh, it can't neither be nor not be. It's got to be either or. And these are, of course, as I, I expect people here know, the uh, titles for the first two sections of Atlas Shrugged, right? Named for the laws of Aristotelian logic the principle of non-contradiction, non-contradiction, and part two of Atlas Shrugged is either or. Part three is named A is A for the law of identity, which uh, is also, I think, uh, an axiom like this, but it's not one that Aristotle himself identified. It was uh, formulated by later Aristotelians. Okay, so we have the idea of an axiom. I'm not going to say much more than I have already about axioms in this course. But I just want to alert you to one place you might look if you're interested in them. In, uh, in book four, or gamma, of Aristotle's Metaphysics, chapter uh, three and following, there's a discussion of how we can uh, 
establish that uh, the principle of non-contradiction is an axiom. And it's very much the same kind of technique that's used uh, in OPAR, that is Dr. Peikoff's Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, to uh, show that the various objectivist axioms, the three objectivist axioms, are axioms. Uh, so if people are interested, you could ask me about that later, or you might want to look at those chapters. They're a little bit difficult reading, but they are uh, the first time, I think, that we find that kind of argumentative strategy. And, uh, and I think it's a real uh, milestone in the history of thought. However, I'm not going to pursue that further here. Okay. So the two types of principles, two broad types, are axioms, which are needed to know anything at all or to learn anything at all, and theses. And the thesis isn't such that in order to learn anything at all, you need to know it. And it is rather specific to a certain discipline. So each science or each art is going to have its own theses. These are the fundamentals of that science or art. Dr. Peikoff described a, a fundamental as that upon which everything in a given context depends. The axioms are, because uh, I've said a principle for Aristotle is the same thing we mean by a fundamental. The axioms are that upon which everything depends. But the theses of the various sciences, the theses of a given science, are those things upon which everything in that science depends. And there are two types, hypotheses and definitions. Definitions define all the terms in the science. So in geometry, you'll get you know, point and line and, uh, and uh, triangle and so forth defined. And hypotheses are statements that something exists or is the case. And what they do is state the basic facts of that discipline, the fundamental facts in the domain studied by the science from which facts, in combination with the definitions, one will be able to demonstrate various things. So for example, uh, between any two points, a line can be drawn, and so forth like this, from which you'll be able to demonstrate, knowing what a triangle is, a three-sided figure, that a triangle is a possible shape, whereas, say, a two-sided plane figure is not. Okay. So the types of principles are hypotheses and definitions and axioms. Now, we need to, if we're going to have episteme, we need to know these principles at least as intensively, at least as well. We need to, the state by which we know them has to be at least as G-knowing as episteme itself. And so Aristotle dithers, this is at the end of the last chapter of the posterior analytics, about what to call this state. Should we call it another kind of episteme that's not by demonstration or what? And what he settles on is calling it nous, N-O-U-S, which is translated in a lot of ways, none of which are very clarifying. Uh, I use understanding. It's sometimes translated comprehension uh, or intelligence or infuriatingly intuition, because that implies that it just happens kind of mystically, whereas I don't think Aristotle thinks that that's how it works. But anyway, there's this state called nous, N-O-U-S, spelled like, more or less like the French, uh, and it's the name for the state in which you geno a principle. Just like episteme is the name of a state from which you know 
a effect as having to be the way it is. It's the most kind of intense knowledge you could have of something that's not a principle. Um, uh, noose is the intense type of knowledge you have of something that is a principle, from which, by demonstration, you'll get episteme. Okay. With this all, uh, all in view, I want to just summarize what we've learned about Aristotle's view of episteme. A science, or episteme, studies a domain. It's based on principles of which our knowledge is called nous, or understanding. These principles include both axioms, which govern all thought, and the theses specific to the domain of the science. The theses include definitions of the terms in the science and hypotheses which state the fundamental facts in the domain, that certain fundamental existence are there, uh, that they follow certain fundamental laws, whatever it might be. And the other facts of the domain are then demonstrated from these theses. And by being demonstrated from these theses, they are explained and therefore are enown, epistastide, scientifically known, however you want to put it. Some people translate it understood, but then we've got this issue of what do you do with noose and... Okay. So let me pause now uh, for, uh, for some questions. Evan? This seems uh, to be modeled like geometry on a very Okay, uh, this actually brings me to the next thing I was going to say, so it's a, a convenient question. Um, you might take this to be advice on how you should go about trying to find truths. Deduce them. That's how you go about finding things. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, some people have interpreted Aristotle that way, uh, either as readers of Aristotle or they just took the advice that way and went about trying to deduce everything. But it's pretty clear, and I think most scholars of Aristotle now agree, that that's not how he took it. If you look at his treatises, very rarely does he go about giving you the principles at the beginning and then deduces tons of stuff from them. More, he's somehow trying to work back to the principles. And so you might ask, well, what's going on? Some people think that what's happening is when Aristotle wrote these treatises, he didn't know the principles yet. And so what he's saying is, once you know the principles, here's how you should teach your knowledge. But since I don't know the principles yet in this particular case, I'm doing the best I can. I myself don't think that is very plausible either, uh, in part because in some cases he does seem to think he knows the principles, and he still proceeds this way. So the first of the two ways I said isn't right is that Aristotle's advice for how to find knowledge is go about deducing it. Second view that might be right. He doesn't think that's how you find knowledge. After all, he always says things like, and we'll see this tomorrow, you need to proceed from what's first to you 
to what's first by nature. Uh, so Aristotle thinks that's not how you find knowledge, but it is the proper pedagogical approach once you've found the knowledge. And so that would be the view that, say, Newton should go about inducing like he did. But now that we've got Newton's laws, what we ought to do is teach physics in precisely the way Dave Harriman was saying you shouldn't a few days ago, right? Start by giving some broad abstract law and then deducing everything down. I also don't think that's Aristotle's approach, again, because it's not the approach one finds in his corpus. And just as an example of that, metaphysics is supposed to be prior by nature to physics, but it's called ta metatafusica, the stuff that comes after the physics. And it's very clear from the way Aristotle's writing this book that you need to have read the physics first. And he says, we're going to work our way up to metaphysics. So here's the third view, and what I think is the right view of how to understand all this. This is not how we reach knowledge of, uh, of things in the first place, nor is this how we should teach things or when we're running a school. But rather, this identifies a kind of structure that our knowledge has once we have it. You have to come to acquire the knowledge in a different order than this. But once you have the knowledge, you have to organize it in your own head in a certain way, where you see effects as following from causes, and you've identified things as the fundamentals. And this view that knowledge has this kind of a structure is not limited to people who try to deduce everything from first principles and think that's how they're going to find things out. So if you look at Newton, right, Newton wrote a principles of motion, right? He's trying to identify the principles, the basic facts in the domain and give definitions of them from which we can now explain a whole lot of other things. And that's the same thing that was done in geometry. Even in geometry, they didn't in fact start, as Aristotle well knew, from all of the principles, some of them they had, but they started from noticing things about shapes and then trying to figure out why they were that way. Uh, and interestingly, the, the Aristotle's views on this reflect the work that had been done in geometry up to his time. But also, Euclid's geometry reflects Aristotle's, because Euclid came after Aristotle, reflects Aristotle's views on uh, what the structure of a science is. Uh, with that, let me uh, continue. I'll take some more questions shortly. But since that brings us into what we're going, well, where I was going, uh, if you think of this not as how to get knowledge, but as the kind of structure that an understanding of something has once you have it, you think of this as the structure of a science, then this is a view that's very widely held in the history of thought, uh, including by people we might think of as rationalistic or too focused on deduction, but also by people who we wouldn't. People like, for example, Newton or Bacon. Bacon thought, it's good, we do want to arrive at principles. The problem is people try to jump to them too quickly. We need to slowly work our way up to them. Uh, and he is on board with Aristotle here, on the idea that the final knowledge, once you reach it, has to have this systematic structure whereby lots of things, uh, effects, are deduced from the causes. And though you might not come to know the effects by deduction in the first place, you acquire a kind of insight into them when you see them as following deductively from the fundamentals in that field. So a wide range of different people with different approaches to science especially if we look historically, embrace this model of what a developed body of knowledge is. But not everyone. Recall now that as an example of a techne, 
because a techne was supposed to have this same kind of structure as a science. I was using medicine, because that's the one Aristotle uses. And the principles of medicine were such things as there are four humors and the thumb if you get too hot, etc. Uh, things that we now know to be false. And that it probably wasn't that difficult to figure out were false well before now. Uh, and there were vigorous debates among the doctors back in ancient Greece about, well, what are these principles? And do we really know any principles? And should we even be trying to find them? Recall that Aristotle was contrasting the doctor who had the techne of medicine and knew the principles with the man of mere experience who didn't know the principles but had observed a lot of different things and therefore was able to kind of project without knowing why what things would happen in a different case and maybe what medicines would work and would not work. Well, the Greek word for experience is empiria, and there came to be a sect of doctors called empiricists or empiricists or empirics who said, all these principles and fundamentals, we can't get that. That's not the kind of thing we can know. All of the ones that have been proposed are BS. Nothing else seems promising. I'm giving up on that, and I'm just going to try to, in effect, take case histories and make educated guesses about what will happen to my future patients based on the wide knowledge of case histories I have in the past. This school is on the rise again today. It's called evidence-based medicine now, for those who are following what's happening in medicine. Well, opposed to these people were the rationalists in medicine who thought that they could deduce from fundamental principles of natural science some basic truth, like there are four elements, and there must be four humors, and, and proceed in medicine that way. And you had a debate in medicine between the rationalists and the empiricists. This was happening already in ancient Greeks. And you can read um, Galen's, for example, work on the sect, where he talks about the different sects of doctors. Well, this same kind of dispute came up in other fields, history, for example. And in the early modern period, the idea of a, a dispute between rationalists and empiricists got generalized to all of philosophy. What's at stake here? Well, what's at stake is whether this kind of knowledge is possible. The empiricists say it isn't. All you can have is what Aristotle calls empiria. You can never really have any insight into why things happen the way they do, that they must happen the way they do. Rather, as Hume, the archetypical uh, early modern empiricist put it, everything is separate and disconnected. And all we have is habits of expecting things caused by what we saw in the past. And so you have empiricism, the view that episteme and techne are impossible. Because it is impossible to reach principles from perception, and they then add, we have no independent means of knowledge, independent of perception. In contrast to rationalism, which we've been alluding to now often, which was Plato's view. Episteme is possible, says Plato, but it's not of the perceptible world because it is based on principles that are known independently of perception and which pertain to non-perceptible objects. So we have this view of what science, what intensive, distinctively human, high-grade knowing would be. And then we have a debate between one view that says, yeah, that's just not possible. We really can't know in a way that's essentially different from what animals know, just noticing what's around us and forming expectations. 
and another group that says we can, but only because we have some special insight which is independent of perception. Some, what we would describe as mystical or extrasensory awareness of things. And this school, at least generally, certainly Plato's version of it, thinks that the knowledge we acquire by this means doesn't apply to the perceptible world. Aristotle represents a third view between these two. Not really between, but distinct from these two. Episteme and techne, he says, are possible, and they are of the perceptible world. And we can have them because noose of principles, knowledge of the principles of this special intensive sort, can be derived from perception. And just to appreciate the significance of this view, which is held by a handful, very small handful of people in the history of thought, consider Ayn Rand's definition of reason. Reason is the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by man's senses. Reason is the faculty that identifies the things in this world that we can perceive. But it doesn't just, uh, it integrates them into a whole, into a systematic knowledge of them, into uh, principles, such that we can think in principles about them. This definition of reason is an essentially Aristotelian statement, as opposed to the empiricists who say, Really, there is no such thing as reason, if by reason you mean a kind of knowledge that's essentially different from what animals have. We're just souped-up animals whose empyrea is a little better than animals' empyrea, maybe a lot better. But still, all we're doing is forming expectations based on what we've seen in the past with no real knowledge, no real understanding of what we're seeing. Everything is loose and disconnected. And the rationalists who say, there is reason, there is a distinctly human form of knowledge, but it comes from something separate from perception and is of something separate from ordinary objects in this world. So we can ask Aristotle, I think, we have some questions for him pertaining to how this view is possible, how he can maintain this. Questions that come up for Aristotle himself that I want to be the structuring questions for the rest of this class. How can it be that we can have episteme and techne of the perceptible world uh, based on perception, ultimately? And so here are my questions for Aristotle. Question one, how can episteme, which is of universals rather than particulars, be of objects in the perceptible world, which are particulars? This is a question that comes from the Platonic context. Episteme is of universals. It's universal. And there's a distinction between universals and particulars. And this is largely why Plato thought that we couldn't have it of perceptible things. We're going to see Aristotle's answer to this question, which he considered a very difficult question today. The second question, how can noose of principles come about from forms of knowledge, such as perception, that are less intense than this noose itself. Why is this a question? Well, normally if you derive one item of knowledge from another, the derived item of knowledge is no stronger or more secure, can be no stronger or more secure, than the item of knowledge from which you get it. For example, if you're not certain that 
um, that it's raining out, you won't be certain that you'll get wet if you go out. So the question is, how can the noose that we have of, universe, uh, that we have of principles, if it comes from perception, be more intense than the perception itself is that it comes from? Or, put another way, how can we get noose from perception? And here there are two sub-questions. The first question is, how could noose come about from perception? What are the natures of the states involved such that this is possible? This is a question asked, as it were, from the third-person perspective. You notice about human beings, or you think about human beings, that they have episteme, and that it seems to be based ultimately on perception. And you ask, how is that possible? Just like you notice about human beings that they can digest food. And you ask, how is that possible? How does it work? What is it about them that enables them to do that? But there's also a second question that's asked more from the first-person perspective. I want to do this. I want to get some episteme. I want to understand the world around me. So what methods must I follow in order to do it? What methods must I follow in order to achieve nous and episteme? And today, I want to answer the first question, question one, and question 2A. And tomorrow, I want to answer question B. So tomorrow, we're going to be focused on methodology. And today, we're going to be focused on the nature of universals and of the various states of knowledge, such that it's possible to have episteme of this world and to derive it somehow from our perception of this world. Okay. In order to do this, I want to bring up some topics from Aristotle's physics and metaphysics, which are crucial to understanding this. And uh, the topic we need to discuss is the issue of change, or what the Greeks called coming to be. How does something come to be? Well, some different ways to think about it. But let's start this way. Suppose I were to announce that I had a great money-making scheme that I wanted you to invest in. I see John Allison's in the back. So I go to BB&T with this plan and try to get it financed. And I have the idea, I say that I've uh, come up with the ability to change candies into iPhones. iPhones are popular, well-selling, expensive items. Candy's pretty cheap. And I can change them one into the other. Watch, I've just done it. For people on the tape, I put the candy behind my back and then pulled out an iPhone. Now, why is that not a change? There's no cause and effect there, I guess. What else? The candy's still there. Okay, so what if I pulverized the candy? Would it then be changing it into an iPhone? No, it has to be the very same thing that was the candy that is now the iPhone for the candy to have been changed into an iPhone, for the candy to have become an iPhone. Right? And in general, whenever something comes to be, there must be something that comes to be it. If an objectivist comes to be or a star is born, there must be a non-star who becomes a star, some not yet famous person who gets famous, or some non-objectivist who becomes an objectivist and learns objectivism. And if a cake comes to be, there must be something that becomes the cake, the batter. But 
it's not just that the batter gets replaced by a cake, like the candy would have gotten replaced by the iPhone. The very batter itself has to come to be the cake. Now notice there's a, a difference here, because I can say I have a name for what it is that was first a non-objectivist and then became an objectivist. There's a man who was not an objectivist and became an objectivist, or who was not famous and then became famous. And so when a star is born, I could say, Joe here went from being not famous to famous. But when the cake comes to be, I don't have a word for what's there before and after. Batter names the thing that comes to be a cake, but there's not still batter when it is a cake. We need a name for something. There needs to be something that underlies, as Aristotle puts it, the change. That's there at the beginning of the change and is still there at the end. Something that goes from being batter to a cake. Or, to take a slightly grosser example, that goes from being some menstrual juices to being a person. Because the person is ultimately made out of that, thinks Aristotle. So we need a name for what it is that becomes an entity. Not just what was there at the beginning, but what remains there at the end, what underlies the change. The subject of the change. Subject is just Latin for underlier, and the Greek word is hupokamenon, what underlies. Coming to be requires a subject which underlies the change from not being the thing in question to at the end being the thing in question. And so, anytime we have something that can come to be or pass away out of existence, anything that can change, in whatever respect it can change, we need to be able to analyze it into a subject and something that the subject comes to be, which it wasn't before. And Aristotle introduces the terms matter and form in order to do this. Anything that can come to be or pass away can be analyzed into matter. And the matter is that which is able to be the thing in question. Matter is the subject, the stuff which is able to be batter at first and then a cake later. And then the form is that which the subject comes to have which makes it actually a cake, say a certain shape or consistency. To be matter for Aristotle means to be matter for something. It means that which is able to be that something, whatever it's matter for, but is also able to fail to be that thing. And so there is something which is able to be a cake. We don't have a special word for it, so we just call it the matter of a cake. But which is also able to fail to be the cake and just be cake batter. And we can describe chemically what this thing is. It's got so much gluten or whatever it's got. Um, but there's no one word for the set of stuff, the mixture of stuff, which is at one time batter and at another time a cake. And so we call it matter. That which is able to be but also able to fail to be whatever it's the matter for. There's no such thing as just matter. It's always the matter of something. Well, most often this term matter is used for that which underlies the coming to be of an entity. When you have an entity, or what Aristotle calls a substance, something like a cake or you, each of you entities, right? There's that which is able to be the entity, uh, which is its matter, and then what it is that it has when it actually is that entity, which Aristotle calls its form. 
So the term is most often used to refer to the matter for an entity. But Aristotle uses it in other ways. For example, he'll talk about entities as matter for their attributes. You've got the makings of, we might say, a fine man or a fine scholar. That means you, the entity, the certain person, has the matter for being an intellectual, has the potential for being an intellectual, because matter is a name for what is potentially something. And he uses it in other ways, too. For example, Aristotle doesn't think the stars can come to be or pass away. He thinks they're just always there. But they move. And so he says they have matter for change of place, which is just a way of saying that the stars are able to be in any one of a number of different places. The star has the potential to be here or here or here or here or here all along its course that it follows. And then at any given moment, it has a certain form or it's actualizing a certain one of those potentials, the potential to be here and not all of the other potentials it has. Or I'll give you another example. Consider a soap bubble. The soap bubble is a sphere. And we can consider the sphere geometrically, the very sphere which is this soap bubble. And we know that spheres can be bisected to yield two hemispheres. Can, therefore, the soap bubble be bisected to yield two hemispheres? No, it'll pop. But <clears throat> it can be bisected in thought, right? You could perform a kind of geometrical operation on the soap bubble in thought and think about what properties the hemisphere, which is this part of the soap bubble, has. And so the soap bubble is capable of undergoing the change, the bisection, in thought, but not physically. And so Aristotle says it has what he calls intelligible matter, matter for thinking, matter which makes it possible, that about it which makes it possible for it to undergo certain things in thinking, though it can't undergo them outside of thinking. At least that's one interpretation of what he means by intelligible matter. The soap bubble example is my own, but related to one he gives. Okay. Now I've been talking about matter and form and matter as the potentiality, the ability to be a certain thing, and form as the actuality of that thing. And uh, I want to just introduce the Greek words that I'm translating this way, that are typically translated this way, because it's important to understand the scope of this view to see the range of possible translations. The word for matter is dunamis. Sorry, the word for matter is hule, but the, when I say matter is potentiality, the word for potentiality is dunamis. And dunamis can be translated potentiality, ability, capacity, faculty, power, potency. And all these words, though they have different specialized senses in English, really have the same core meaning. It's the being able to do or be something, right? A power is your ability to do something, your capacity to do something, your faculty to do something. These all more or less, you know, they have shades of nuance in English, which I'm exploiting sometimes in, in saying this. But for Aristotle, they're all the same word, and they all, you know, deep down have the same sort of meaning in English. And actuality, the Greek word is energeia, from which we get energy, of course. Um, and it is the activity or actuality or exercise, the exercise of a power or faculty 
or ability or the activity corresponding to a potential to do something. Okay. I'm running somewhat behind where I want to be, but I think I do need to pause for questions here because this might be unclear. So I'll take uh, one question anyway. Um, Sorry, this is actually related to the previous one, but the three views that you mentioned on Aristotle's view of epistemic and species. Okay, go ahead. Uh, could it, might it be his view that something is not epistemic until you can structure it this way? That's how you show it's epistemic? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely that's the case. That is, you might know the very fact that you later, sorry, the question was, uh, might Aristotle's view be that a given piece of knowledge, uh, say that the moon is eclipsed or whatever, uh, is not episteme until you've deduced it from prim principles, although you might have it beforehand. And yes, that's definitely his view. And we'll see that more clearly tomorrow. Andrew? Does your third point mean that, that a potentiality is always exercised in some, I mean, that everything that has a potentiality has actualized at least one of its, one of its potentialities? So the, the question is, is it the case that everything that has a potentiality is, that is a potentiality, is always actualizing one of its potentialities? Or to put it another way, is all matter always in some form? Yes. And if we put it that last way, all matter is always in some form, then yes, that's definitely true. However, when we talk about it as a potentiality, we're often talking about it as relative to a particular actuality. So the potential to be a cake. And uh, talking about it as a potentiality, it hasn't actualized that, that relative to which we're calling it a potentiality. But it is always actualizing something. There's nothing that exists as a mere potentiality. At least, I don't think there is. There are some differences of interpretation here. OK. Let me introduce now a further point that's easier to see once we have this idea of the different, the range of meaning of dunamis or potentiality. Aristotle distinguishes between what he calls first and second actualities. And put in English and exploiting the range of different uses of exercise and potential and so forth, which we don't have in Greek, I think we can capture this point in the following way. A first actuality is an acquired capacity, which is the actualization of an underlying potentiality, but is itself actualized in its exercise. Now that's a little cryptic, but it won't be when we get an example. Is anyone here a singer? Suppose someone is. Uh, is that person actually a singer? or merely potentially a singer? Well, when they were born, they were potentially a singer. They have the ability to acquire singing, to become a singer. But what is being a singer? Well, it's having the ability to open up your mouth and, to open up your mouth and sing. Right? So singing is what Aristotle would call a, a first actuality. If by singing, I mean, when I say she sings, I mean she's someone who can sing. Any moment, she can just open up her mouth and start doing it. But if I mean, la, 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 you know, she's going and there are notes coming out of her, that's the second actuality. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up this point is because it is the way that Aristotle solves the first of the two questions I put to him before. How can an episteme, which is of universals, be of objects that are particulars? And here's his answer. 
he says that all episteme is universal, does contain the greatest puzzle of the ones we've discussed. However, though the statement is true in one way, there's another way in which it's not true. Well, why? Because e-knowledge has two senses, as e-knowing also does. One is in potentiality, and the other is in actuality. Or, one is a first actuality, and the other is a second. Now, Aristotle's standard example of the distinction between first and second actuality is knowing, e-knowing, episteme, versus contemplation. And to make that example clear, let's, where did I put, here it is, let's bring back up our math problem from yesterday. Is the product of that multiplication even or odd? Even. Okay. Now, it's even because it's the product of a multiplication in which one of the numbers is even. Did you know that, namely, that when you multiply anything by an even number, the result is even 10 minutes ago? Everyone did, because we talked about it yesterday, and anyone who didn't, probably you knew it before yesterday. But that knowledge was in you, it was not active, until just now, when now you're contemplating a particular case of multiplying something by an even number. And so that knowledge is being used. Okay, that's contemplation. That's knowledge in second actuality, or what he here calls knowledge in actuality. Whereas the knowledge that you have when you're not thinking about it is in first actuality. It's mere potential relative to what you're doing when you look at this problem, though it's actual relative to how you were when you were six and you were able to learn that but hadn't learned it yet. Now, what's the payoff of this? Well, while the potential, the episteme that you have when you're not using it, is like matter, and so is universal and indefinite, and is of something universal and indefinite, the actual episteme, the actualized episteme, is definite and of the definite. It's of a certain this, that is a thing you can point to, a particular. Well, why? The idea is that when your episteme about even numbers is just in you, when you're not using it, when it's in mere first actuality, it is of all even numbers. But when you actually are contemplating multiplying something by an even number, you're always contemplating multiplying some specific number by some specific even number. And when you're appreciating that the result has to be even, you're always appreciating it in some specific case. Aristotle doesn't think we can think without bringing a particular case to mind. Otherwise, it's just words to us. And when we actualize, therefore, our episteme, which is a kind of power or capacity to know all the things of a given kind, we're bringing that power to bear on a particular, putting it a different way. When exercised, an episteme is always knowledge of a definite particular object. However, considered as a capacity, an episteme is indefinite, like matter. Why? Because it's the potential to know any one of a number of different things, any one, to know of any one of the different 
odd numbers, that when multiplied by any one of the even numbers, the result will be some even number. And so what it knows, if you want to say what is known, which definite thing is known by that episteme as a capacity, the answer is no particular one of them. What it knows is indefinite or universal. In other words, e-knowledge as a capacity is an ability to e-know any of the particulars of a certain kind. And when exercising this ability, we know a certain particular insofar as it falls under that kind. This is a more general point really here that's just being capitalized on about potentials and actuals. So if you take a lark that's actually singing, it's singing some particular note. But if you take a lark that's merely able to sing and say that lark is a singer or that lark sings, there's not an answer to the question, what note does it sing? Rather, you can answer it only by giving the range of notes that the lark could sing. The lark being a singer, when it's not actually singing in the moment, is its ability to sing. And what is it able to sing? Well, a range of things that it's able to sing. And when it actually sings, it's actually singing one of those things. The result of this for Aristotle is that we do not need there to be universal objects in order for us to have universal knowledge. Because our universal knowledge is a power to know particular objects insofar as they fall together under kinds. What it is for us to have universal knowledge is for the intensive, high-grade kind of knowledge I could have of you, the power that I have to have that knowledge of you, to be the very same power that gives me that same knowledge of him and him and him and him. That is, knowledge of men. I have a power to know men, which is my episteme of anthropology, which allows me to know about any man that he has the traits that he has insofar as he's a man. And so the question that we need to ask Aristotle to go further in this is what is it about the individuals under a kind that make them go together such that they get known together, such that a single power applies to knowing all of them. As Aristotle puts it in one passage, um, what we need for there to be demonstration is not that there are forms of the sort that Plato thought, but that it be true to say one thing of many. True to say the same thing of many different things. That we can treat all these things as one. The many as one in thought. And what needs to be true to treat them that way? Well, one possible answer, and the common answer you get in textbooks, relies also on this distinction between matter and form. The common textbook answer, which again I don't think is the right answer, is that um, all human beings, for example, because human beings are objects that can come to be and pass away, are made from matter and form, have matter and form. That much is true, according to Aristotle, I agree. And what they have is a single man form that makes them a man. And then differing matter that makes them matter. That makes them the individuals they are. 
And there are some passages in Aristotle that do suggest this, that all human beings have the same form and different matter. Medieval or, uh, the medievals, uh, the Thomists, had a phrase that captures this. Matter is the principle of individuation, and form is the principle of universality. And so what it is that makes all the men go together such that we can know them by the same power, such that we can uh, say the same things about them and think the same things about them, what it is that makes all the men go together is that they share the same form, and what differentiates them is only their matter. Now, I myself think this view is wrong. I think we can start to see why it has to be wrong by considering the passages we were just talking about, where he talks about how it is that we could have um, knowledge of particular objects. Well, what was going on there, right, is that he was saying that the episteme in potentiality was indefinite and like matter, whereas the episteme of actuality was of a particular uh, and was definite and was not like matter. Matter seems to be associated in Aristotle with universality, not with particularity. And in fact, this is a common feature in Aristotle. He all the time is telling us that the universal is like matter, or is matter, perhaps intelligible matter, matter for operations in thought, like the soap bubble might have had. Uh, in particular, when he talks about uh, genera, should put this up, when he talks about genuses and species, genera and species, the word genera, genus, is the same as kind. The, Eng the Greek is genos, the Latin is genus, the English is kind. Uh, in Greek, the word is eidos, the Latin is species, the English is form. And um, uh, we say that a definition, right, is made of a genus and a differentia. People may have heard that. Well, in Greek, that's a definition is made of a kind and a difference. And Aristotle routinely says that the genus is the matter, and the differentia is the form. Notice it's the same word form that's contrasted with both matter, in which case it's usually translated form, and with genus, in which case it's often translated species. And Aristotle thinks of when you kind of define a species by adding the differentia to the genus. What you're doing is you're, it's the same kind of process in thought that takes place in physical matter when some stuff, some matter that's able to be an entity, gets informed, acquires a form, and becomes that entity. What's happening in both cases is something that's indefinite, something which is a potentiality to be any one of a number of different things, is getting specified, formed, determined into one of the things that it could be. That happens physically when some stuff is made into a particular thing rather than any of the other things it could be. But a process that is structurally the same happens in thought when you narrow down from some universal to a particular. Now, there are all sorts of implications of this 
that I would go into if I had time. One of them which I just want to mention is that, um, well, maybe I have enough time to do this. A genus or kind is intelligible matter for its species. With the species differentia serving as the forms which specify the indeterminate matter-like genus to yield the different species and to make each species the species that it is. This matter-form relationship between the genus and the species, uh, sorry, between the genus and the differentia, makes the resulting species one thing in a way that it would not be if you just said, for example, blonde woman. That doesn't yield a kind of woman. Whereas rational animal does yield a kind of animal. Why? Because animal is something that is uh, indeterminate in a certain way. It's essentially indeterminate. What an animal is, is that which could be a horse or a man or whatever, and you have to specify which it is. I'm going by this. This is the point that I wanted to skip. So let me just indicate it, and people can come to that in the question bar, why there's an issue of unity here. But the other point that I do want to raise, just because it's a really interesting tie into objectivism, is that the forms of a kind, or species of a genus, have to be in a certain relationship to one another. A relationship of what Aristotle calls difference rather than mere otherness. And this means there must be some one potentiality which they're all alternate realizations of. Another way of putting it is that there must be some respect in which they're commensurable, such that in thought, if not in physical reality, one can be transformed to the other. They have to be comparable along some dimension or set of dimensions. His word is commensurable. Another thing he says, they have to have a way to one another. And what he thinks allows them to do this is that the species of a genus differ in what he calls the more and the less. They differ quantitatively. And this, I think, people can see, although I won't elaborate much here, is very much an anticipation of Ayn Rand's idea of measurement omission in the formation of concepts. That things that are similar, and similar in such a way that you can form a concept of them, um, differ in measurement rather than in some other way rather than by being merely disparate from one another. OK, let's uh, pause for a little bit for questions here, because I've covered quite a lot. Is a species a kind of form, or form a kind of species? Uh, form and species are two ways of saying the same word, or two translations of the same word that get used in our typical translations in somewhat different contexts. So I'm not sure how to answer that question. Um, well, let me tell you the question okay. that's behind it. I was trying to think. You know, if I'm following this, and I'm still puzzled how we get to universals, but I was wondering, okay, am I a species of man? Okay, that's, that is a somewhat, okay, so the question is, are individual men species of men, man? Uh, Aristotle says no to that. Um, here's why. Um, I didn't give kind of all the elements of this, but I'll, I'll, I'll give a sense of it now. The idea is, if you have a wide genus animal, what, is, what it is to be an animal has a kind of range. An animal is, let's put it in our terms, 
a perceiving locomoting organism, let's say. And to call it a perceiving locomoting organism is to have a range. There are different types of perceiving, different types of locomoting. And so you can divide down or specify animal by saying, well, it's a perceptually perceiving organism, or a conscious organism. It's a perceptually conscious organism versus a rationally conscious organism. Rationally conscious gives you man. Okay. Between perceptually conscious, which senses does it have? Because there are different senses, right? And, and perception is a, a, a genus term over all the different senses. Only touch. Does it also have sight? Right? And so in the definition of animal in general, there's kind of broad terms that can be narrowed down. Likewise, it locomotes. Okay, by swimming or by flying or by walking. If by walking on how many legs? Do the legs bend in the, this way or that? And so forth, we narrow it down. Narrow it down uh, by narrowing down the very terms that are in the definition or that are part of the essence, as Aristotle would put it, of the thing. But now we get down to you. We get down to man, rather. And you say, well, what distinguishes you from some other man? And so we say... Um, you're blonde, uh, you're slender, you wear glasses, you're bright, and so when we can keep going through these things. But these features are, Aristotle thinks of them, no longer subdivisions of the very thing that was the essence of animal, namely that it moves and moves, uh, that it moves around and, um, and uh, uh, that it can perceive. They're other traits, which of course we always knew animals had, but that now we're narrowing by. If we're going to cut down man, narrower than man, we're going to have to start doing what Ayn Rand called cross-classifying. And even by that, we're never going to get all the way to you, because there's not going to be anything to know by grouping things so narrowly as whether they were you or not. Um, and, so, uh, and so there are going to be lowest species. And man is a lowest species. You can cut it up, but you're doing a different kind of thing. You don't get species of man when you cut it up. Now, so that's an answer to that question. You started, preface the question by saying, you're still not sure how we get to universal knowledge. And it's not supposed to be clear yet how we get to universal knowledge. That's the question of how do we acquire the kind of human knowledge that has nous and episteme starting from perception. The question that I was trying to answer is, how can universal knowledge be of particular things? Because Plato thought it couldn't be. And Aristotle's answer to that is, your universal knowledge, the sense in which your knowledge of, say, geometry is universal, is that it's a power which you can apply to any particular shape. Your knowledge that triangles have an angle sum equal to that of two rights is not of some universal triangle with its universal angle. It's rather a power to appreciate that fact about any triangle that you should happen to encounter. Okay. So I want to move now, though, to that second question. How do we get the universal type of knowledge? How do we come to having noose from states that are less powerful than noose? And recall that there are um, two sub-questions here. One is the kind of um, third-person perspective on this. What are these different states that are involved such that we can understand one state coming about from another? And the second is the methodological question. How can I, what do I need to do in order to get to news? 
And I want us to look at this first question. Now recall, we already had in, uh, in metaphysics, uh, the first chapter, which we considered yesterday, a progression of what the steps are. You start with perception. You go from perception to memory. From memory, you come to have what we call experience. And from experience, you get the principles of art or episteme. And this same progression is rehashed in the last chapter of the posterior analytics, where the question is specifically, how could we ever come to know principles from less intense, or as he puts it there, less exact or precise forms of knowledge? Well, there are a few things that can be said. Uh, I'm going to forego, for the sake of time, talking about perception, uh, except to say the following. Aristotle thinks of perception as a kind of being affected by a perceptible object, whereby it impresses a certain form on you, forms uh, corresponding to its different perceptible qualities. It transmits its color to you, and therefore your mind comes to be affected in a certain way, which constitutes a grasping of its color and its sound and so forth. And there are interesting things that he says about perception, for which I refer people to, uh, to the uh, work De Anima, or On the Soul, um, to... Uh, uh, book 2, chapter 5 through 3, chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to omit that for the sake of time, except to make the point that he thinks that either perception can't be false, um, strictly speaking, it can't be true or false, because that only applies to beliefs, but it's always valid, to use objectivist terms, or at least the best kinds of it are valid more often than anything else. So it's as good as you get of the things that it's about. So the problem, perception is not a very high grade of knowledge, but it's the strongest possible knowledge you could have of something that's right in front of your eyes at the moment. Okay. There's another kind of state related to perception, which I need to bring up just to uh, help us understand uh, empiria and episteme. And that's what Aristotle calls fantasia, or imagination. And this is the retaining of an after image from perception. So the idea is you perceive. And the perceiving, if it's by touch, say, is this thing impressing itself on you? I just kind of pushed some candy into his arm. OK, but now that push, that, recept, that thing you received, that shape you received tactily of the candy, and the texture of it, isn't gone. It's still there in you, even though you're not perceiving it now. There's what is called an image or a phantasm of it left in you, an after effect of the perception, an image. Now, these images are what allow for memory. Memory is a certain type of a fantasia. It's an after image of perception that you have that's associated with the object you perceived it from. So you remember my having pushed that into you. And that remembering is you're still having that image somewhere in you. And you're associating it with the past event that caused it. 
but also you can just work with your fantasy eye. You can work with images. You can imagine things. You can visually or tactily or olfactorily project different things. And this is important for a number of reasons for Aristotle. First of all, he thinks it's what in animals corresponds to belief. If you're going to try to explain human action, why did so-and-so go to the store? You explain it by saying what he wanted and what he believed. He wanted some milk, and he thought there was milk at the store, and that's why he went to the store. And if he comes home all frustrated, it's because his belief was wrong, and there wasn't milk at the store. Well, something like that has to be going on in animals, because sometimes they do things that don't work out for them. Right? And there's some kind of projecting the future. I actually talked about this in my class on objectivist epistemology. And Aristotle calls it fantasia, a kind of imagistic projecting of the future. And uh, I think this is still part of human nature. If anyone wants uh, an example of it from my own life later, you could ask me about my toilet bowl story and why I'm a little bit afraid of uh, getting cut every time I go near one. Um, but, all right, now I have to tell the story. I was once cleaning a ceramic toilet bowl and there was a little bit of jagged ceramic I didn't realize was there. And it really gashed my finger. And now every time I go to clean a toilet bowl, I have this kind of wincing feeling, and my hand just wants to wince back. And it's not in words, this is a toilet bowl that can cut me, but there's just a kind of almost visual and tactile memory of what happened. And that's what I think is a fantasia, and it's something that we still have as human beings. And it still just comes over us like it does for animals, presumably. But also we can control it. You can fantasize about things, right? Don't be shy. Okay, so it's something that we have some ability and facility with. And Aristotle thinks that this is essential to thinking. There's no thinking, he once says, without an image. Well, so why? Because when you're using your episteme, right, you might say you're using your episteme of triangles to grasp uh, in a particular case that certain angles have to be a certain way. Uh, you can do that with a triangle that somebody shows you on a blackboard or something. You can also, though, do it when there's no triangle there, but only because you can imagine a triangle. You can project visually a triangle and run through the geometrical proof, whereby you understand of that imagined triangle why it has to be the way that it is. Okay, so that is what little I want to say about perception and fantasia, given uh, my being behind. Okay. What then, with that in mind, can we say about the steps of this progression from perception to universals, to how we come to grasp the universal principles of a science, that grasp of which is called noose? Well, perception is a reception of a, a kind of being affected by things outside of us. Memory is a type of retaining of perception, a type of fantasia. What then is empiria? What then is experience? Well, what do we know about experience already from what we've discussed? People who have experience are thinking particularistically rather than universally. Now, the examples that were given, most of the examples that were given by Aristotle of somebody who's using empiria were of human beings who aren't thinking absolutely particularly. 
but are using fairly low-level concepts. For example, he sees Socrates cough and then get better when he has some chicken soup, and he sees Callius cough and then get better when he has some chicken soup, and then he sees you cough, and he says, maybe you should have some chicken soup. And, and if you ask him why, he would say, well, because you're coughing, and you look like those guys, your cough sounds like their cough, this is some chicken soup, it helped them. And the guy is, you know, somewhat universal, he's using universal concepts like cough and chicken soup, but they're not at the level of universality you need for medicine, where you can identify, well, what kind of person are you? You're a guy like them, you know, but you're a guy with tuberculosis, and that, well, chicken soup's no good for that, but... Um, you're a guy with this disease of this type, and you, you don't have the concepts pertaining to the field. And it's because you don't have the specifically medical concepts, the medical universals, that you're not able to identify the causes. But he does tell us that animals have at least a little bit of empiria. So it has to be a kind of thing that you don't need a concept to have. What I think empiria is is an ability based on past knowledge of particulars, either low-level kinds, like, uh, or, um, or literally perceived particulars that you remember, and associational ability to kind of have a hunch about what's going to happen in similar cases in the future. He says that we have, from, we have a capacity for experience, which comes about from many received memories of similar things which get associated, and then that capacity, I think, issues in what he calls notions of experience, which are kind of ideas. Huh, I bet you he's going to be like that guy. I bet you this is going to be like that. Expectations. Expectations which for an animal might take the form of fantasiae, of images. For a human being might take the form of fairly concrete expectations, concretely phrased. Okay, that's then what experience is. It's a kind of habit of projecting things based on associated memories without grasping the concept that's involved and that you would need to understand why things like this behave in the way they do or have the features they do. You can think of it as a kind of implicit or half-baked concept. Now, somehow from experience, we're supposed to go to having a principle of art and episteme, of grasping some universal kind, perhaps, and grasping its definition from which we're going to be able to prove certain things about it. How does that happen? Well, Aristotle is famously infuriating on this point. Uh, he gives us a very famous analogy, which I'm going to run through for you. And to understand the analogy, I first should tell you a little bit about Greek warfare. So, the Greeks fought kind of like this. They were hoplites, a guy with a shield and a spear. And they would get together in these teams called the phalanx, these battle formations, where I'd have my spear and my shield sticking out from it, and the guy next to me would hide under part of my shield and stick his spear out like this. And it almost made a kind of tank-like thing that was able to do all kinds of cool maneuvers. And if you watch the movie 300, you get to see some of the Spartans doing it. Okay. So, with that in mind, here's what Aristotle says. A rout's occurred. So, the rout's occurred and all these guys are running all over the place. Okay. <laughs> With one man standing, another man stands, then another, until it's arrived at a principle. So, after the rout, people are flying over all over the place. It's not a very orderly, very powerful situation. 
And somehow from that arises order. How? Well, one man makes a stand, like one item being remembered. And it's the same word, stand, that he uses for something standing and sticking in your memory. And then other things start to gather around it. And then another until it forms this whole, which is then able to charge into battle. Now, it's somewhat perplexing what's meant by this. And people have different interpretations. It's something you need to use a little imagination to see what he can mean by this. But here's what I think is going on. If you take the one hoplite, the one soldier, he's not able to do the things that the phalanx does. He can fight a little bit, but he can't do the phalanx maneuvers, like, say, ducking while the guy behind him thrusts a shield, a, a, sword, a spear. But after he makes a stand and starts fighting, a second guy can come up with him, and a third. And still, they can't perform quite like a phalanx does. But they can start to approximate in a haphazard, ad hoc manner the kind of work that the phalanx does. Until eventually, there are enough of them that they're functioning as a full-fledged phalanx. And what I think is going on, but again, this is speculation, is that a single member, is that a principle gives you a kind of ability to grasp cause and effect relationships when you have it. Knowing a single individual can't do that, nor can remembering a couple of individuals. But as you start to remember individuals, and the memories of the individuals start to get associated, they start to, without yet being the principle, do a kind of ad hoc version, approximate version, of what the principle would do for you if you had it. And that's what empiria is, or what we might call implicit knowledge, or an implicit concept is. But once you get enough of them, they're all there. And all that it's left for them to do is to say, OK, we're all here. We can function now as a unit. And that's what it is to have the principle. And that unit then can charge into battle, which is the analog of charging into demonstration and getting you your episteme. Now, it would be nice if Aristotle went on to clarify this metaphor. And he sort of does. But the clarification doesn't help. Here's what he says. Let's state again what was just said, but not said plainly. Great. Finally, you're going to be clear. Okay. For with one of the undifferentiated things standing, the first universal is indeed in the, well, without reading this exactly, what the picture that we get from this seems to be that we divide up the particular. With Callius in our soul, he's a particular man, we can find man as a kind of subpart of Callius. And then now man is in our soul, and we could find animal as a subpart of him. And now animal's in our soul, and we could find organism as a subpart of that until we get to something that's an absolute principle. Now, the problem with that as a clarification of the thing about the phalanx is that a phalanx is no part of a hoplite, quite the reverse, right? The guy is part of the phalanx. And so what we would want to get something that clarifies this metaphor. What this metaphor seems to be doing is showing how we start with Callias, then some other guys come about, and from that we get man. And then we add in some other animals, like horse and bird, and from that we get animal. And that's how our phalanx is formed. And it's strange that Aristotle should give us these two things as versions of the same process. So what we need to understand, and this is what we're going to talk about tomorrow in the at the same time as we're talking about his methodological advice, 
is how these two things can be somehow the same process. How the process of getting to the principles of a science, which seems to be the same process as forming concepts, notice that kind of snuck in there sometime, and we have to think about tomorrow why that is, is both the process of putting things together and of breaking things apart somehow. How pictorially it kind of works like this. There's Socrates, and then once you add Callias, you can start dividing up Socrates and Callias and noting their accidental features, which then you can note makes them, they, they have something in common, which, which they're both a man, and you, know, you get this kind of, in this picture, dividing horizontally and, and accumulating vertically. Uh, but that's just a graphical representation of the fact that there needs to be a breaking down element of the process of going from perception to noose and an adding up element. And we have to think about why both of those. Okay, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, let me take any questions that there are. Go ahead. Um, in terms of your actual potential or a uh -huh. I see how that applies in the physical world, uh, you know, an acorn becoming an oak, right. and, and how that is a necessary answer to Heraclitus, um, you know, as a basis for any knowledge. Then it sounded like Aristotle was making that also a parallel in epistemology. Yeah. And, and I didn't get how the actual potential applies. So <laughs> matter, or that which is potentially something, is that which is able to be that thing, but also able to be alternative things. Right? Uh, or you can put it another way. It's a power to be a certain thing, which is also a power to be other things. Now, um, Aristotle thinks of it this way. If you think about universal knowledge, right? Universal knowledge is a power to know any of the different particulars falling under it. So your universal triangle knowledge is an ability or potentiality to know not just th this triangle or that triangle or any of the other triangles that fall under triangle. And so if you say what is, you can break something down into its matter, that which, about it, which makes it able to be what it is. And so Aristotle introduces the idea of intelligible matter, that about it which enables it to be broken down in thought, so to speak, such that you can think of it as not, I can think of you, not just as you, the particular person you are, but as man in general, as something that could have been brunette, or short, because you're relatively tall, right, or weak versus strong, or, you know, I can think of you as something that's able to have been other than as you are, in, in anything that's narrower than you're being a man. And Aristotle thinks that fact about you is what we can call your intelligible matter or the universal. Well, it's an analogy to the physical uh, rather than because you don't have something in you which is able to turn into somebody else. So in that sense, it's an analogy. But I don't think it's an analogous use of the concept matter. Look, the, the word that's translated matter literally means wood. And it got expanded to mean the timber or material or stuff out of which anything is made. Not just the wood that it's made of, but the stuff that it's made of. Whatever is its wood. 
So the, the wood of my shirt is cotton. Because we don't have a w more general word. We take a kind of clear-cut instance of it, wood, and then we just kind of expand it. So the timber of my shirt is it's cotton. So already the concept matter, you can call a metaphor. But it, it's not a metaphor. It's a kind of broadened use of a concept from a kind of paradigm case of stuff being made of timber. Aristotle wants to expand it even further than that. And he expands it even further than that in all kinds of respects. So he says, look, when you're able to run, but you're not actually running, and then you actually start running, there's something in you which is the timber or matter of running. And then it's actually made into a running when you start going. Uh, it's, is that an analogy? Well, yes, it's an analogy of it to timber, right? And it's an analogy of it to clay and the relationship between clay and a ball that's made out of clay. But what he's trying to do is form a concept for this very broad schematic type of relationship. The type of relationship between something that's indeterminate or general and then something that's specific or determinate under it. So just as the timber is that which is able, or the clay is that which is able to take on any shape, and that's what it is for it to be matter, so your ability to sing is something about your vocal cords that's able to make any song, not yet a specific song, but any song. And singing in general is singing of a song in general, though any specific singing is singing of a specific song. And the general singing stands to the specific song as clay to a ball made out of clay, or wood to a house made out of wood. Well, likewise, says Aristotle, an individual man stands to the general kind man, or the concept, or the universal man, as the ball stands to the clay that it's made of. Why? Because the concept man or the kind man could have been specified or narrowed down or particularized to yield any of the specific men, just as the ball could, the clay could be shaped into the ball shape or any of the other shapes. But this action of specifying the general man to yield specific men is an action that can only take place in thought, not in reality. And more to the point, since the general man only exists in, point, in thought, the process of despecifying a particular man to get to the general man is a process, the process of breaking you down into man in general and what makes you different from other men is a process that is only an intellectual process. Just like the process of breaking down the soap bubble into two hemispheres is only a breaking down that can occur in thought. Likewise, the breaking down of you into man and some distinguishing accidental traits can only take place in thought. Or the process of breaking man down into animal and the differentia rational, which makes it man rather than any other animal, is something that occurs only in thought. And so the kind is matter, but matter for thought or intelligible matter. Okay, that's, uh, that's it for today. We're out of time. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.